Chapter Twelve, Part of Boonfleet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. Moonfleet, by J. Mead Faulkner. Chapter Twelve, Part Two. Ratsey gave me a questioning look, and I could see a little smile upon his face in the firelight. Ay, she's fair enough," said he, as they reflected to himself. "But white and thin. Maybe she would make a match for thee if ye were man and woman and not boy and girl. If she were not rich and thou not poor and an outlaw, and if she would have thee." It vexed me to hear his banter and to think how I had let my secret out. So I did not answer, and we sat by the embers for a while without speaking. While the wind still blew through the cave like a funnel, Ratsey spoke first. John, pass me the flask. I can hear voices mounting the cliffs of those poor souls of the Florida. With that, he took another heavy pull and flung a log on the fire, till sparks flew about as in a smithy, and the flame that had slumbered woke again and leapt out, white, blue, and green from the salt wood. Now. As the light danced and flickered, I saw a piece of parchment lying at Ratsey's feet, and this was none other than the writing out of Blackbeard's locket, which I had been reading when I first heard footsteps in the passage and had dropped in my alarm of hostile visitors. Ratsey saw it too and stretched out his hand to pick it up. I would have concealed it if I could, because I had never told him how I had rifled Blackbeard's coffin, and did not want to be questioned as to how I had come by the writing. But to try him stopping get hold of it would only have spurred his curiosity, and so I said nothing when he took it in his hands. What is this, son? Asked he. It's only scripture verses, I answered, which I got some time ago. Tis said they are a spell against spirits of evil, and I was reading them to keep off the loneliness of this place when you came in and made me drop them. I was afraid lest he would ask whence I had got them, but he did not. Thinking perhaps that my aunt had given them to me, the heat of the flames had curled the parchment a little, and he spread it out on his knee, conning it in the firelight.、Mm, "'Tis well written," he said, "and good verses enough. But he who put them together for a spell knew little how to keep off evil spirits, for this would not keep a flea from a black cat. I could do ten times better myself, being not without some little understanding of such things." And he nodded seriously. And though I never yet met any from the other world, they would not take me unprepared if they should come. For I have spent half my life in graveyard or church, and twould be as foolish to move about such places and have no words to meet an evil visitor withal, as to bear money on a lonely road without a pistol. So one day, after Parson Lenny had preached from Habakkuk, how that the vision is for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. I talked with him on these matters, and got from him three or four rousing texts, such as spectres fear more than a burned child does the fire. I'll learn them all to thee some day, but for the moment, take this Latin which I got by art. Abite arme in ignem etemum qui paratus est diabolo at angelis eius. English, it means, depart from me into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. 
would have at least double that par in Latin. So that get that after me by heart, and use it freely if thou art led to think that there are evil presences near, and in such lonely places as this cave. I humoured him by doing as he desired, and that the rather because I hoped his thoughts would thus be turned away from the writing. But as soon as I had the spell by rote, he turned back to the parchment, saying, He was a but a poor divine who wrote this, for beside choosing ill-fitting verses, he cannot even give right numbers to them. For see here, the days of our age are threescore years and ten, and though men be so strong that they come to fourscore years, it is this their strength then but labour and sorrow, so soon passes it away, and we are gone. And he writes Psalm ninety twenty one. Now I have said that psalm with parson, verse and verse about, for every sleeper we have laid to rest in churchyard mould for thirty years. And no, it had not but twenty verses in it all told. And this same verse is the clerk's verse, and cometh tenth, and yet he calls it twenty-first. I wish I had a common prayer, and I could prove my words. He stopped, and flung me back the parchment scornfully, but I folded it and slipped it into my pocket, brooding all the while over a strange thought that his last words had brought to me. Nor did I tell him that I had by me my aunt's prayer-book, wishing to examine for myself more closely whether he was right, after he should have gone. "'I must be away,' he said at last, though low to leave this good fire and liquor. I would fain wait till Elzevir was back, and fain as till his gale was spent. But it may not be. Nights are short, and I must be out of Purbeck before sunrise. So, tell Block what I say, that he and thou must flit, and pass the flask, for I have fifteen miles to walk against the wind, and must keep off these midnight chills. He drank again, and then rose to his feet, shaking himself like a dog, and walking briskly across the cave twice or thrice to make sure, as I thought, that the Ararat milk had not confused his steps. Then he shook my hand warmly, and disappeared in the deep shadow of the passage mouth. The wind was blowing more fitfully than before, and there was some sign of a lull between the gusts. I stood at the opening of the passage, and listened till the echo of Ratsy's footsteps died away, and then, returning to the corner, flung more wood on the fire, and lit the candle. After that I took out again the parchment, and also my aunt's red prayer-book, and sat down to study them. First I looked out in the book that text about the days of our life, and found that it was indeed in the ninetieth psalm, but the tenth verse, just as Ratsy had said, and not the twenty-first, as it was writ on the parchment. And then I took the second text, and here again the psalm was given correct, but the verse was two, and not six, as my scribe had it. It was just the same with the other three. The number of the psalm was right, but the verse wrong. So here was a discovery, for all was painfully written smooth and clean without a blot, and yet in every verse an error. But if the second number did not stand for the verse, what else should it mean? I had scarce formed the question to myself before I had the answer, and knew that it must be the number of the word chosen in each text to make a secret meaning. I was in as great a fever and excitement now as when I found the locket in the Mahoon vault, and could scarce count with trembling fingers as far as twenty-one in the first verse for hurry and amaze. It was fourscore, 
that the number fell on in the first text, feet in the second, deep in the third, well in the fourth, north in the fifth. Fourscore feet, deep, well, north. There was the cipher read, and what an easy trick! And yet I had not lighted on it in all this while, nor ever should have, but for Sexton Ratsey in his burial verse. It was a cunning plan of Blackbird, but other folk were quite as cunning as he, and here was all his treasure at our feet. I chuckled over that to myself, rubbing my hands, and read it through again. Fourscore feet, deep well, north. It was all so simple, and the word in the fourth verse, well, and not veil or pool, as I had stuck at so often in trying to unriddle it. How was it I had not guessed as much before? And here was something to tell Elzevir when he came back, that the clue was found to the cipher and the secret out. I would not reveal it all at once, but tease him by making him guess, and at last tell him everything, and we would set to work at once to make ourselves rich men. And then I thought once more of Grace, and how the laugh would be on my side now, for all Master Ratsy's banter about her being rich and me being poor. Fourscore feet deep well north. I read it again, and somehow it was this time a little less dear, and I fell to thinking what it was exactly that I should tell Elzevir, and how we were to get to work to find the treasure. It was hid in a well. That was plain enough, but in what well? And what did north mean? Was it the north well, or to north of the well, or was it fourscore feet north of the deep well? I stared at the verses, as if the ink would change colour and show some other sense. And then a veil seemed drawn across the writing, and the meaning to slip away, and be as far as ever from my grasp. Fourscore feet deep well north. And by degrees exulting gladness gave way to bewilderment and disquiet of spirit, and in the gusts of wind I heard Blackbird himself laughing and mocking me for thinking I had found his treasure. Still I read and re-read it, juggling with the words and turning them about to squeeze new meaning from them. Fourscore feet deep in the north well. Fourscore feet deep in the well to the north. Fourscore feet north of the deep well. So the words went round and round in my head till I was tired and giddy and fell unawares asleep. It was daylight when I awoke, and the wind had fallen, though I could still hear the thunder of the swell against the rock-face down below. The fire was yet burning, and by it sat Elzevir, cooking something in the pot. He looked fresh and keen, like a man risen from a long night's sleep, rather than one who had spent the hours of darkness in struggling against a gale, and must afterwards remain watching, because, forsooth, the sentinel sleeps. He spoke as soon as he saw that I was awake, laughing and saying, "'How goes the night, watchman? Is this the second time that I have caught thee napping, and did sleep so sound it might have taken a cold pistol's lips against thy forehead to wake thee?' I was too full of my story even to beg his pardon, but began at once to tell him what had happened, and how, by following the hint that Rentsy dropped, I had made out, as I thought, a secret meaning in these verses. Elzevir heard me patiently, and with more show of interest towards the end, and then took the parchment in his hands, 
reading it carefully, and checking the errors of numbering by the help of the red prayer-book. "'I believe thou art right,' he said at length. "'For why should all the figures be false if there be no hidden trickery in it? If it had been one or two were wrong, I would have said some priest had copied them in error. For priests are thriftless folk, and had as lief set a thing down wrong as right. But with all wrong there is no room for chance.' So if he means it, let us see what tis he means. First he says, tis in a well. But what well? And the depths he gives of fourscore feet is over-deep for any well near Mainfleet. I was for saying it must be the well at the manor-house, but before the words left my mouth, remembered that there was no well at the manor at all, for the house was watered by a runnel brook that broke out from the woods above, and jumping down from stone to stone, ran through the manor-gardens, and emptied itself into the fleet below. "'And now I come to think of it,' Elzevir went on, "'tis more likely that the well he speaks of was not in these parts at all, for see here, this blackboard was a spendthrift, squandering all he had, and would most surely have squandered the jewel too, could he have laid his hands on it. And yet tis said he did not. Therefore I think he must have stowed it safe in some place where afterwards he could not get at it.' for if it had been near Moonfleet, he would have had it up a hundred times, but thou hast often talked of Blackbeard and his end with Parson Glenny. So speak up, lad, and let us hear all that thou knowest of these tales. Maybe twill help us to come to some judgment. So I told him all that Mr. Glenny had told me, how that Colonel John Mahune, whom men called Blackbeard, was a wastrel from his youth, and squandered all his substance in riotous living. Thus being at his last turn, he changed from royalist to rebel, and was set to guard the king in the castle of Carisbrook. But there he stooped to a bribe, and took from his royal prisoner a splendid diamond of the crown to let him go, then, with the jewel in his pocket, turned traitor again, and showed a file of soldiers into the room where the king was stuck between the window-bars, escaping. But no one trusted Blackbeard after that, and so he lost his post, and came back in his age, a broken man, to Moonfleet. There he rusted out his life, but when he neared his end was filled with fear, and sent for a clergyman to give him consolation. And twas at the parson's instance that he made a will, and bequeathed the diamond, which was the only thing he had left, to the Mahune almshouses at Moonfleet. These were the very houses that he had robbed and let go to ruin, and they never benefited by his testament for when it was opened, there was the bequest plain enough, but not a word to say where was the jewel. Some said that it was all a mockery, and that Blackbeard never had the jewel, others that the jewel was in his hand when he died, but carried off by some that stood by. But most thought, and handed down the tale, that being taken suddenly, he died before he could reveal the safe place of the jewel, and that in his last throes he struggled hard to speak, as if he had some secret to unburden. All this I told Elzevir, and he listened close, as though some of it was new to him. When I was speaking of Blackbeard being at Carisbrook, he made a little quick move, as though to speak, but did not, waiting till I had finished the tale. Then he broke out with, "'John, the diamond is yet at Carisbrook. I wonder I had not thought of Carisbrook before you spoke.' and there he can get fourscore feet, and twice and thrice fourscore, if he list, and none to stop him. "'Tis Carisbrook. 
I have heard of that well from childhood, and once saw it when a boy. It is dug in the castle keep, and goes down fifty fathoms or more into the bowels of the chalk below. It is so deep, no man can draw the buckets on a winch, but they must have an ass inside a tread-wheel to hoist them up. Now why this Colonel John Mahoon, whom we call Blackbeard, should have chosen a well at all to hide his Julian, I cannot say. But given he chose a well, twas odds he would choose Carisbrook. Tis a known place, and I have heard that people come as far as from London to see the castle and this well. He spoke quick, and with more fire than I had known him use before, and I felt he was right. It seemed indeed natural enough that if Blackbeard was to hide the diamond in a well, it would be in the well of that very castle where he had earned it so evilly. When he says, the well north, continued Elzevir, tis clear he means to take a compass and mark north by needle, and at eighty feet in the well side below that point will lie the treasure. I fixed yesterday, with the Bonaventure's men, that they should lie underneath this ledge to-morrow night, if the sea be smooth, and take us off on the spring tide. At midnight is their hour, and I said eight days on, to give thy leg a week wherewith to strengthen. I thought to make for St. Marlo, and leave thee at the Eperon door with old Chauvelet, where thou couldst learn to patter French until these evil times have blown by. But now, if thou art set to hunt this treasure up, and hast a mind to run thy head into a noose, why, I am not so old, but that I too can play the fool, and we will let St. Marlo be, and make for Carisbrook. I know the castle's not two miles distant from Newport, and that Newport we can lie at the bugle, which is an inn addicted to the contraband. The king's writ runs but lamely in the Channel Isles and White, and if we wear some other kit than this, maybe we shall find Newport as safe as St. Marlo. This was just what I wanted, and so we settled there and then that we would get the Bonaventure to land us in the Isle of Wight, instead of at St. Marlo. Since man first walked upon this earth, a tale of buried treasure must have had a master-power to stir his blood, and mine was hotly stirred. Even Elzevir, though he did not show it, was moved, I thought, at heart, and we chafed in our cave-prison, and those eight days went wearily enough. Yet t'was not time lost, for every day my leg grew stronger, and like a wolf which I once saw in a cage at Dorchester Fair, I spent hours in marching round the cave to kill the time and put more vigour in my steps. Ratsey did not visit us again, but in spite of what he said, met Elzevir more than once, and got money for him from Dorchester, and many other things he needed. It was after meeting Ratsey that Elzevir came back one night, bringing a long whip in one hand, and in the other a bundle which held clothes to mask us in the next scene. There was a carter's smock for him, white and quilted over with needlework such as carters wear on the down farms, and for me a smaller one, and hats and leather leggings all to match. We tried them on, and were for all the world Carter and Carter's boy, and I laughed long to see Elzevir stand there and practice how to crap his whip and cry, Woohoo! as Carter's do to horses. And for all he was so grave, there was a smile on his face too, and he showed me how to twist a wisp of straw out of the bed to bind about my ankles at the bottom of the leggings. He had cut off his beard, and yet lost nothing of his looks for his jaw and deep chin showed firm and powerful. And as for me, we made a broth of young walnut leaves and twigs, and tanned my hands and face with it a ruddy brown, 
so that I looked a different lad. End of chapter 12, part 2 Recording by Simon Evers